0: Comfortable, but couldn't let them find out. Don't forget that many of them had been living off and on at the Algonquin for 20 years or more, and they wanted no changes. Grandpa had become a bona fide boniface, the expression for innkeeper that often described past Algonquin owner Frank Case. Grandpa proved a worthy successor. He liked to be called by the authoritative name... Ben B. Bodney, and loved using the initials BBB on engravings, though privately he admitted that he never really had a middle name, and the B in Ben B. Bodney stood for Bologna. He was the rare hotel owner who told his steward the bills for meat and other foods weren't high enough. He wanted only the best meals at his hotel, still smarting from that salty boiled water that his mother called chicken soup. He was a tireless worker, always looking for new ways to modernize the Algonquin, while retaining its Edwardian elegance. From the 1950s through the 1970s, he made the place a paradox, an old-fashioned hotel featuring new technology. Before they became commonplace, he installed such novelties as air conditioning and smoke detectors. He supplied the maids with walkie-talkies. He also made the Algonquin the first hotel in New York to use electronic key cards. However, he insisted on one cozy concession to the past, employing an elevator man when other hotel elevators were going automatic. Grandma Mary's strong claustrophobia probably clinched the deal. Busy as he was, he demanded timeout during the baseball season. No one was to disturb him when a ball game was on radio and later TV. In fact, he often had up to three televisions playing, watching baseball, football, basketball, and or golf tournaments. Meanwhile the Algonquin was enjoying a renaissance. The visitors not only included New York show people, but members of the U.S. Supreme Court, international filmmakers, musicians, novelists, and of course, everyday civilians. The hotel's three restaurants, the Rose Room, Oak Room, and Chinese Room, were hotspots for celebrity sightings. In addition, The Blue Bar was a favorite haunt of Tennessee Williams, Norman Mailer, William Soroyan, and John Cheever. After Broadway openings, The Rose Room, teamed with regulars including Ingrid Bergman, caricaturist Al Hirschfeld, Moss Hart, Kitty Carlisle, and Tallulah Bankhead. Bankhead, like Angela Lansbury, lived at the Algonquin while still in her teens on arriving in New York. Before openings... Critics like George G. Nathan, Walter Kerr, and H.L. Mencken would gather. Mencken called the hotel the most comfortable hotel that I have ever found in America, and God knows I've seen a lot of them. Visiting as well were original roundtablers, members of the Algonquin Round Table, such as Dorothy Parker, George S. Kaufman, Mark Connolly, and various Marx Brothers. To wit, the hotel remained the stomping ground of writers from The New Yorker magazine, including its editor, Harold Ross, and his successor, William Shaun. In fact, Ross conceived The New Yorker there in 1925 during a poker game with illustrious writers. Tony Cicciello, the hotel's veteran bell captain, reported, When I first came here at night, when you walked down the halls, all you heard was typewriters. Writers seemed to get inspired at two or three in the morning. These guys would have been lousy working eight to five. Grandma Mary basked in the glitter and the glamour. Where else could she enter the elevator alongside William Faulkner and Thornton Wilder and introduce them, saying, Don't you two boys know each other? And what neighbors the Bodneys had. Every day was like a TV episode featuring great guest stars. Among the permanent Algonquin residents were Mr. and Mrs. James Thurber, composer Alec Wilder, and character actress Enid Markey, who was the silent screen's first Jane opposite Elmo Lincoln's Tarzan in Tarzan.